Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, welcome to our family gathering. And uh, back to our sermon series that we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. If you recall, we're calling it Outside In. We're tracking stories of Jesus that show how he opened the way for outsiders and challenged insiders to think again about what God's love looks like and how it relates to those on the outside and the inside. And we're calling this God's centering love, that he focuses attention uh, on the forgotten and the marginalized. He brings them back into the fold and into the conversation. Last week, uh, if you remember, we talked about the, the iconic story of Mary and Martha, these two women, and, and talked about part of God's work of centering love is to break down categories that hinder flourishing. And so we see that as Mary transgressed her boundaries as a woman and became a disciple, that Jesus honored that transgression, because that's what love does. Uh, today we're going to see that Jesus will continue this pattern of challenging the boundaries that set themselves up against the merciful work of God's kingdom. So we're going to fast forward a couple chapters and land on Luke 13. Uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at the first nine verses. And it says this, <clears throat> Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these, that these Galileans were, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. He told, then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I will dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Today we proclaim this good news that God's mercy is at work even now. God's mercy is at work even now. Digging under the surface of our lives, reckoning with our hearts, and offering his very life to nourish us into flourishing. Uh, today, in Luke 13, Jesus dismantles one of the biggest obstacles to the love of God for all humans, but especially for those who are starting to take Jesus somewhat seriously. I assume that if you're here this morning, you're looking to take Jesus somewhat seriously. You wouldn't be in this kind of building at this hour uh, if you weren't. And we'll, we'll call them, maybe us, uh, wannabe insiders would-be insiders, people that want to be on the inside of what God is doing in the world. And uh, one of the biggest obstacles for those of us that are in this uh, category, that have this desire in our hearts, 
is the illusion of meritocracy. Meritocracy. I've talked about this um, at least once before. I think it was like the fall of 2021, but we all had COVID brain back then. Who knows what we remember uh, from those times. Um, but meritocracy is this idea that we get what we deserve. That we get what we deserve. That what's fair and just is that I get what I earn and you get what you earn. That we get what we merit. So good things happen to good people. Good, hardworking people and bad things well, they happen to lazy, evil people. You know those people, right? Um, every environment that you and I operate in trends toward, if not is saturated in meritocracy. Our workplaces, our families, our country, our sports teams, as we saw last Sunday, yeah? Well, sometimes you don't get what you earn, depending on how you saw that last call. Yeah, I guess we could talk about that. <laughs> um, our lives, even churches, run on meritocracy. It's based on a misunderstanding of justice as retribution, a misunderstanding of blessedness as earned, a misunderstanding of God as the dispenser of just desserts. Um, one of the ways that I've noticed this uh, idea triggered in me and then also like questioning it to its core is the whole, like this time last year when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know? And uh, like it's clear like from the very beginning till now, like this is a war based on the power machinations of like essentially one human being, you know? Um, and, like, every time the news pops up about this again, I'm like, gosh, I, like, I want this person to pay dearly, you know? I want them to be brought down. And I think there, there's a sense of justice in that, right? We don't want those who suffer to suffer. Uh, and we want those who are responsible to be brought to account. But I was, I was thinking about it this week and remembering back 20 years ago, um, having a very similar feeling about a different dictator who was over the nation of Iraq and how we did storm into that country and take it over by force and found that dictator hiding in a hole. I remember the news footage, I don't know if you do, if you're old enough to, um, of him being pulled out of this hole that he was hiding in. And I remember like almost the mock trial of this person and how quickly their life was extinguished and, and feeling an enormous amount of pity for this person. And I remember, like, I was a new Christian at that time, and I, I, it never, like, sat right with me of, like, okay, we got justice. Retribution has been done. But is this what, really, what God's justice actually looks like? And then... Um, you know, like, so we all pat ourselves on the back, mission accomplished, right? Uh, the U.S. marches on. And what happens in the vacuum of power? Groups like ISIS form, who are bent on retribution and vengeance and violence. And so violence begets violence, 
Those who live by the sword die by the sword, and the cycle goes on and on and on. And we still, like, live with the repercussions of our mock justice. But this is the world that we live in, a world of betrayal and revenge, of getting one up on the other guy. And so every time this things happen, whether it's on the world stage or something that happens in our own life where something bad happens to us, someone does something to us, and we feel this need to rise up and to defend ourselves or to get back at them, to give them what they gave out. This is triggered in us, that revenge is just, and we root for it to happen. But friends, we are Christians. If you're not a Christian, like, welcome. It's good to have you. Bless you. But, but today we see that into a world of meritocracy, of betrayal and revenge, of taking pleasure when retribution comes for bad people, today we proclaim that the kingdom of God runs on God's mercy, and God's mercy is available even now. It's at work today, here. And it gets under the surface of our desires and our wants. It reckons with our hearts, and it gives its very life to nourish the depths of who we are. Friends, where, where do you need to repent? To change your mind of what it means to live in a meritocracy today. So we're in Luke 13, right? Um, and Luke 13 comes after Luke 12. You paying attention? Okay, you're tracking. Um, and in Luke 12, uh, Jesus has been talking about an impending judgment that's coming for Israel. He's telling people, be awake, stay aware, read the times. Just as you know when it, the, the rain is coming, so too pay attention to what's happening. Because judgment is coming. He's saying this over and over and over again. Um, and I can't dwell on it too long. I would love to take 20 minutes uh, to, to talk about this. But I, I have to mention it at least. That most of the time, if not all of the time, where Jesus is mentioning judgment in the Gospels, he is not talking about hell as we think of it. He's not talking about uh, some cosmic end of the world at the end of time. He's not talking about eternal conscious torment for unbelievers. He is, he's not talking about what Dante pictures as seven levels of hell. What Jesus is talking about when he talks about judgment is the, the inevitability of the Roman Empire coming to destroy Jewish life in 70 A.D. That is what he's talking about. He's talking about a historical event that happened in time and place some 40 years after he's talking now. Jesus is reading the times and saying, the Romans are going to come and destroy everything. So pay attention. They're going to come and destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem. See, the temple was the center of the cosmos for the Jewish imagination. So for them, the destruction of it is the end of the age. It's the end of the world. Do you see this? 
So Jesus is saying, all of this stuff is happening around you. Don't you see what's going on? This Herod is up to this Make Israel Great Again project, and he's recruited all the religious leaders to his side to do this. Don't you see that this is going to end in your destruction? This is where nationalism goes, friends. And so then Jesus gets to chapter 13, and he does a meritocracy takedown in a couple ways, two ways that mercy triumphs over meritocracy. The first is that there are no more scapegoats. There are no more scapegoats. And the second is that blessings and curses are not as simple as God's people want to make them to be. There are no more scapegoats. And blessing and cursing, it's not as simple. So uh, the first, no more scapegoats. Um, Picture this in your imagination. You're walking with Jesus. He's just talked about uh, the fact that judgment is coming. Everybody's wondering, what does he mean? What is he talking about? You're walking towards Jerusalem. Maybe you see the, 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 the outline of the city in the distance. Um, and then a group of people pipes up and says something to Jesus. So verse 1, there are some people that were present at that time. That word time, just like we saw last time, uh, for Martha, that word time is kairos. Um, They're having a, a kairos, like they're paying attention to God breaking in what's, and what's happening for these people. So, so some people are present at that kairos, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Jesus is talking about judgment, and then a group of well-meaning folks pipes up and says, I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about those dirty Galileans who got what was coming to them. Now the context is that there was a rumor spreading around that some Galilean pilgrims who had gone down to the temple of Jerusalem at Passover um, were, were stirring up trouble. And Pilate, who is the Roman overseer of Jerusalem, who presided over these major events to keep the peace, well, he caught wind of the trouble that they were making and killed them right there in the temple courts. And their blood mixed with the sacrifices that they intended to give. And those two bloods sort of mingled together metaphorically. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus has just said, be awake because judgment is coming. And then these non-Galileans go, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Now, um, we wouldn't think of Galileans as bad folks today. Like, it doesn't, you know, stir anything for us. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to do like a hey, fill in the blank with your favorite, like, dirty group here. Um, I'm not going to make you do it. I will, but I won't make you. Um, but, <laughs> but we might, you know, we might talk about, like, those, those pineys down there. Um, those drug dealers from Camden. Those job-stealing immigrants. Uh, those liberal Christians. Those Trump voters, 
those social justice warriors, those woke mob types, those charismatic, emotional Christians that don't know their Bibles. So Galileans were considered careless with God's word. Backwards, they spoke with an accent. Their entire area was penetrated by Gentiles. Many of them were intermarried with them. Can you imagine? They worked alongside pagans. In fact, Jesus, uh, spoiler alert, is Galilean. And uh, his family worked in construction, which means he probably worked alongside Gentiles to rebuild Roman infrastructure. And so Jesus was likely ritually unclean every single day of his life growing up. Stinking Galileans. So Jesus hears this rumor about Galileans, and what does he do? Does he get defensive? Does he... um, Switch sides and jump on board? Does he name call? No, he doesn't do any of those things. He brings the focus back to the wannabe insiders who are in his presence. He focuses his attention on their hearts. He deals with their desires. He says, do you suppose that they're worse than you? No, the same thing will happen to you if you don't change your mind. And again, Jesus is not talking about hell here. He's talking about people being destroyed by the Roman army. If they play the same game of who's better and who's worse, who's good and who's bad, who's a scapegoat. And then he ones up them. I love when Jesus does this. He ones up their logic. He says, how about those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Siloam was a tower over the pool of Siloam, which is right in the heart of the city of blessedness and purity. We're not talking about Galilee anymore. We're talking about the very center of Jewish life. The, The temple is in the shadow of the Tower of Siloam. This is as close to God as you get. You think they were better or worse? than everybody else. You go, Jesus is going, you remember that tower and how it fell on some of your relatives? Israel's most faithful, most loyal, most patriotic people, were they baddies too? See, meritocracy, it survives off of scapegoating. You know what our problem is? Them. If we could just deal with those guys, then we'll be great. It survives off that. And the logic of meritocracy is that we are defined by who we are all against. Who the outsiders are. Who our enemies are. And we're in because they're out. That's how we know we're in. And this logic, it rules and shapes the lives of many people, including many Jesus followers today just as it did then. But also today, also today, just as it was then, God's mercy is what defines us, friends, not our enemies. There are no more Galileans anywhere. There are no more Galileans. God delights in giving mercy. And so we proclaim today that God's mercy is available to everyone, including you, 
today, right now. He gets below the surface of your life. He deals with our hearts, and he gives his life to fertilize and nourish his mercy in us. Where do you need it? Where do you need it today? Where have you been living under the hypocrisy of meritocracy today? The second temptation uh, that Jesus destroys is the temptation to draw a direct line between blessings and curses. We might call it like divine karma. Jesus takes this out at the knees. Um, Now, Jews came by this understanding honestly. Um, Just like Martha, like last week, she wasn't bad for uh, complaining to Jesus about her sister breaking these social norms. She was doing exactly what was culturally expected of her as a woman, and she expected every other woman to do the same thing, right? She, she, she came by that knowledge honestly. And so, too, like the Jewish people, they come by this knowledge that God works uh, in this direct sort of black and white way honestly. They were careful readers of the Scripture who were informed and formed by books like Deuteronomy, which explicitly says this is how God works. You want to see it? Deuteronomy 28. Verse 1 to 3 and verse 15. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. Pretend you're a faithful Jewish woman or man reading the scriptures for yourself or hearing it in synagogue. What message do you take from this? If we all live a good life, we're going to get the good life. If we live a bad life, then that good life is going to be taken away. Friends, I don't know how else you read this. Right? So let's give Jesus' audience the benefit of the doubt here. Now, um, we should probably do like a 14-week series on Scripture and how we interpret it as Christians. We should probably do that at some point. Um, I don't have four weeks right now, or 14 weeks. I have about four minutes. So what could go wrong, right? Right? (laughs) here we go scripture is in tension if not dare I say in conflict with itself scripture is in tension and dare I say in conflict with itself I know this is hard this is hard for us evangelical Christians to reckon with because Uh, we tend to see the Bible as a manual to life with absolutely no room for error or mistakes because how can it be God's word if it's anything less than that? I get that. I get it. Jewish people don't share that presumption, though. They don't share it. 
Jews tend to look at Scripture and say, we need to argue this out or we can't come to know the truth. This is the rabbinic tradition. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says. He's, this is, that's, that is the rabbinic tradition. So I'll, I'll show you. This is just one example. You have Deuteronomy saying that if you obey, things will go well with you. If you don't obey, you'll die. But then you have Job who's like, oh yeah? Really? If you obey, everything goes well. Really? In fact, Job's friends essentially quote Deuteronomy to Job. What'd you do, Job? What'd you do? You had to have sinned somewhere, because God wouldn't curse you if you hadn't sinned. And Job's like, I'm telling you, for 30 chapters, I didn't do anything. (laughs) The whole point of the book of Job is that we have no idea what's going on in the heavenly realms. We have no concept of the spiritual warfare that's being waged, and suffering and blessings are not that simple. They're not as simple as Deuteronomy puts it. And then you have the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is like, this is all baloney. Horse hockey. Uh, Not true. Um, The rich live oppressively and they suffer no consequences and the poor suffer for their choices. So we might as well eat what you can and enjoy it while it lasts before it's all taken away. Right? Which one tells about suffering and blessing and curses? Which one? There is a tension-filled wrestling in Scripture about how we connect what happens to a person with what they deserve. There's tension there. And it's not that some parts of Scripture are wrong and others are right. It's this principle, okay? This is the principle I wanted to get to. It's that human consciousness could not apprehend and comprehend what Jesus is teaching here in Luke 13, a thousand years beforehand. Couldn't grasp it. In other words, there is something called progressive revelation. Because people couldn't see it before. And so God accommodated himself to what they could understand and comprehend. Because that's what love does. I mean, those of you who are parents, you know this, right? You, 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 you don't bust out the, the trigonometry book with your five-year-old. I mean, maybe you do if he's a genius. But like, you don't speak on that level to what they can understand. You get down to their level. And you speak in concepts and words and phrases that they can grab onto. It's an act of mercy to allow people the freedom to comprehend only what's within their ability at the time. Jesus himself says this. He says it in Matthew 13, verse 16 and 17. Blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people, good folks, 
longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, Jesus is saying, it wasn't their lack of desire. It was their lack of capacity. It wasn't a lack of God's love. It was the presence of it. He's saying, I'm able to speak in ways that I that God couldn't before, prophets of God couldn't comprehend before. But you have the capacity to understand it because I'm here among you now. And so too, friends, Jesus is here among us today in 2023. And so we don't read our scriptures in this flat, static way where everything has equal weight. We don't take Genesis 12 as the final revelation for how God speaks to women. I'm sorry, we just don't. As if women like Mary and Martha need a man to mediate on their behalf like Abraham did for Sarah. We don't believe that anymore, right? Progressive revelation. We read scripture with Jesus as our rabbi. Jesus at the center. Jesus who shows us how to put it all together because Jesus is what God has to say. All right. Did I stopwatch? Did I do four minutes? Let's call it four. Four minute rant over, okay? Um, What does this mean? The reason I went on this rabbit trail is because it means that God does not Send calamity to curse the bad people. This is what Jesus tells us. This is what Jesus is debunking. God does not send calamity to curse bad people. God didn't send AIDS to curse the LGBT community in the 80s. God didn't send 9-11 to curse corporate greed or secularism in America in the 2000s. God didn't send an earthquake to curse the Muslims in Syria and Turkey last week. Amen? This is not how God works. Because God is like Jesus. Now, maybe we're, I mean, sounds like we're on the same page with that. And maybe maybe meritocracy doesn't operate that way in our life when we look out at major events. But maybe, maybe it's hidden under the surface of things. Maybe we connect Blessings and curses to merit or disobedience in our own lives. Maybe we, like, you know, the barista gives us a free coffee and we're like, yeah, I did pray this morning. <laughs> right? <laughs> or maybe I, I prayed for two days straight for this headache to go away and it hasn't. Maybe it's because I yelled at my kids the other day. Maybe God's not punishing me, but maybe he's teaching me a lesson and I haven't gotten it yet. I still have to figure it out on my own because God's waiting for me. He won't bless me until I can do so. Do you ever beat yourself up to get the blessing of God? It's meritocracy. This is what it does to us. It it gives us, on the one hand, scapegoats to justify ourselves, and on the other hand, it gives us the illusion to think that we can control God. 
that he's some kind of genie in a bottle, and if we just rub him with our obedience, then he'll spring out and give blessings. But today, friends, we proclaim that our God, the God that Jesus reveals, is a God of mercy, and God's mercy is at work even today. And so we're no longer defined by our enemies. We're no longer under the curse of needing to believe that we can control God. We get to experience the freedom of the good news. And so Jesus tells this parable, which sometimes people disconnect from the previous conversation, which makes no sense whatsoever. These two things go together. He tells this parable uh, to, to demonstrate um, that there is a, an alternative to meritocracy called mercy. So you have a vineyard owner who's noticing that a fig tree isn't producing any fruit, and fig trees are supposed to produce fruit. So he orders to have it cut down. But there's one person, a caretaker, a shepherd of the vineyard who steps in and says, please leave it alone for one year. I'll go dig around it myself and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now, scholars are all over the map about the identity of these two individuals. Um, especially the, the identity of the vineyard owner. Is it God? Is it somebody else? Like, I, you know, we won't do a show of hands. But um, I've always read it as though it, it is like God the Father. But another in, uh, intriguing possibility is that the vineyard owner could be Caesar. Um, there were rumors swirling around that Caesar had given up on Judea as being a prosperous vassal state for the Roman Empire after Herod had poured so much money into it. Like a fig tree that's not producing fruit. Um, and that he was ready to cut it off, cut it out, storm it over, start again. Um, so there's a, there's a possibility there. Now, the identity of the caretaker is also um, sort of a mystery. Um, but for a second, let's, let's, let's think of him as Jesus, because I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, because of the fact that Jesus himself gives a hint as to how he plans to fertilize the soil. And so you see, um, Luke's, Luke mentions at the very beginning, this conversation about Pilate, the Galileans, and sacrifices. And it's no coincidence, I don't think. Because at the end of Luke's gospel, Pilate himself will mix the blood of Jesus, a Galilean, with the Passover sacrifices. Jesus will become the dirty Galilean who is killed in the temple. Not because Jesus deserved it, but because he is the exact image of a merciful God who gives his very life to fertilize and nourish those he loves. The caretaker himself suffers for the fruitless tree. And historically, we know um, that, that unlike other would-be messiahs who try to enter Jerusalem in order to take it over by force. Jesus' sacrifice, it sets off a movement of people who don't take up their lives but lay their lives down for their enemies, 
This is a core principle. And this was so confounding to the Romans that, that Jerusalem's destruction doesn't come for another 40 years. They get one more year to discover this mercy-filled God. So friends today, we, we too have one more year, yeah? The sun is out. The, we've been given another day. Jesus is present. Not to check on your progress. Not to curse you for bad behavior but to free you with his mercy and nourish you with his very love. And so where have you been living in a meritocracy? Where have you uh, tried to control God by your obedience or defined yourself by who you are not? Give it up today. Change your mind. Repent. We're going to pray. Um, and ask God for this mercy, I, it would be like a really twisted irony, wouldn't it? Um, that if we all left today patting ourselves on the back that we're so thankful to be smarter. Wouldn't that be terrible? And the worst thing we could do is be like, I'm glad I'm not like those idiots that don't know this passage and what it really teaches, you know? Let's not be like that. We want to be the kinds of people that leave asking for the mercy of a God who's ready, ready, ready to give it. So let's pray.